tomorrow, or maybe the day after tomorrow, or it might even be today, but anyway, we're right around the 78th anniversary of one of the most storied military experiments conducted in the United States, the Philadelphia Experiment, or Project Rainbow, as some would have it, wherein the U.S. Navy tried to render an entire ship invisible, and things went really, really wrong, breaking the space-time continuum. This story dovetails nicely with another secretive military experimental station at the tip of Long Island in the picturesque seaside town of Montauk. And together, they make one hell of a good yarn. You leave the world behind and enter a large chamber filled with boxes and crates as far as the eye can see. Welcome to... The Conspiracy Clearinghouse. The podcast that takes a rather skeptical look at conspiracies and mysteries. Each episode will examine various conspiracy theories, most of which are not true, a few of which might be a little bit true, and even a couple that turned out, in fact, to be true. There are many boxes in the clearinghouse, and along the way, we'll look at some mysteries and hoaxes as well. We dare to look behind the curtain that's behind the curtain. I'm your host, Derek DeWitt. Welcome to the Conspiracy Clearinghouse. Happy Easter! The Philadelphia Experiment. A man named Carl Allen sent a package, postmarked Seminole, Texas, labeled Happy Easter to an Admiral Firth at the U.S. Office of Naval Intelligence. Inside was a copy of a book written by amateur astronomer Morris Jessup that had been published on January 1st, earlier that year. The book was called The Case for the UFO, Unidentified Flying Objects. This was not a pristine, hot-off-the-presses copy. Instead, it had all kinds of marginalia handwritten on many of the pages in three different colors of ink, suggesting perhaps three different book defacers. One of these people was identified in the notes as Jemmy, while the other two scribblers remain in the shadows. Much later, they would be known as Mr. A and Mr. B. All three of them collectively refer to themselves as gypsies. The notes, which are filled with inaccurate capitalization and punctuation, you can consider this maybe the first social media post, talk about how Jessup, the book's author, sure got close to guessing some pretty accurate details about flying saucer technology, which the gypsies know all about because they are, in fact, aliens themselves. There's much talk in the notes about a great space arc, or mothership, a great war, telepathing, force rays, Sheets made of diamond, something called clear talk, vortices, magnetic nets, and much, much more. It seems from the notes there are two types of aliens living here on Earth, one group in secret underground cities and another group living in something called stasis neutral, some kind of neutral gravity zone in outer space. And the aliens living here on Earth are actually of two types themselves, called the LMs, who are nice, and the SMs, who are not nice. Also included in these margin notes are references to something the gypsies call the Philadelphia Experiment. 
Now, some sources say this book was sent to the ONI in late 1955, while others say it happened in April 1956. Other sources say that the debased book was sent actually to the ONR, which is the Office of Naval Research, not the ONI. Whatever. One thing we can be sure of is that in January 1956, this Carl Allen guy starts sending the author of the book, Morris Jessup, letters, sometimes using his own name and sometimes using the pseudonym Carlos Miguel Allende, with a return address in New Kensington, Pennsylvania. At first, these letters warned Jessup to stop investigating UFOs and their technology, spinning a tale about dangerous energies, based on some of Albert Einstein's equations about a unified field theory that he'd worked on but deemed unpublishable. The secret Einstein theories, say later letters, were used in an experiment by one Franklin Reno at the Naval Shipyard in Philadelphia in late October 1943 with disastrous results an experiment that Allen slash Allende had seen for himself. While serving on the Liberty ship the SS Andrew Furuseth, Allen had witnessed an experiment to turn the Cannon-class destroyer escort the USS Eldridge invisible. Not opaque to radar, but invisible-invisible, like to the eye. It did, but the ship suddenly teleported away, ended up in Norfolk, Virginia, 200 miles distant, and then returned to the waters in Philly a few minutes later. Alan Allende gave some technical-sounding details like, quote, The field was effective in an oblate spheroidal shape, and any person within that sphere became vague in form, and as a result of the experiment, some of the crew went insane. Some crew became raving lunatics, others simply went catatonic, and a few found themselves physically frozen in place somehow, unable to move a millimeter from the position they'd been in when the experiment started and yet still alive and conscious. And there were even worse side effects. One man became incorporeal and walked through a ship bulkhead, only to vanish and never be seen or heard from again. While others caught fire spontaneously and, despite all efforts to extinguish the blaze, burned for 18 days. As proof of what he says, Alan slash Allende tells Jessup to check Philadelphia newspapers from either the spring or the fall of the winter, but certainly not the summer of either 1944 or 1945 or 1946, and look for an article in the upper half of a page somewhere in the last third of the edition, and he'll find his proof. <laughs> well, despite those oh-so-precise instructions, Jessup is unable to to find any such article that would constitute proof or even a reference to this event. They corresponded for a while, but finally Jessup gave up, determining that the letters were the product of an unhinged mind. In 1957, Jessup was asked to come to the Office of Naval Research and take a look at this crazy copy of his book that they'd gotten their hands on, either because it was sent directly to them or because the ONI passed it on or however that happened. Well, right away, Jessup recognized the handwriting in the margin scribbles. Why, that's the same handwriting as my wacko pen pal, he thought, Carl Allen. And even though the two were no longer in contact via the mail, he did give them the new Kensington address from the letters. The Navy sent a couple of investigators there, but it turned out just to be an abandoned farmhouse. Captain Sidney Sherby and Commander George Hoover became interested and started asking around, hey, was there some kind of experiment that went awry in the Philadelphia Harbor back in late October 1943? But 
they could get no confirmation or evidence for this. Commander Hoover chatted about it with the head of a company that did contract work for the Navy, Varro Manufacturing of Garland, Texas. Varro's president, Austin Stanton, became quite interested in this crazy annotated book and mimeographed off 127 copies of the book with margin notes plus the letters that Jessup had received, which he had passed on to the Navy. This combination edition of Jessup's book would become known as the Varro edition. A few reporters got wind of this and tried to delve further into it for fodder for the silly season, which is usually in the middle of summer when not a lot really happens, so newspapers tend to publish more frivolous materials. Uh, This is also sometimes known at some publications as cucumber time. One reporter visited the town of New Kensington, Pennsylvania, and said he actually spoke to Alan's family. They told him that he had a brilliant mind, but he was also, quote, a fantastic leg puller. And it would later emerge that Allen did, in fact, have a long history of mental illness. Despite the warnings, Jessup was undeterred and would write three more books about UFOs, but they really didn't do well, and he became depressed that his attempts to spread the truth about aliens among us were going unheeded. His wife left him, he was in a very bad car accident, and then in April 1959, he killed himself on the side of the road by hooking up a hose to his car exhaust and piping it in through one of the rear windows. Friends said he'd been talking about suicide for months, but conspiracy folks thought his death was suspicious. Suspicious. Because, of course they would. Nothing up up a sleeve. That's a reference to the cartoon series Rocky and Bullwinkle. Okay, so far so obscure. But then Ohio writer and stage magician Vincent Gaddis who goes down into the history books as the man who coined the term the Bermuda Triangle, wrote about this supposed Philadelphia experiment in his second book, the 1965 Invisible Horizons, True Mysteries of the Sea, using stuff he'd found in a copy of the Vero edition of Jessup's book that he'd somehow managed to get his hands on. Then Charles Berlitz, grandson of Maximilian Berlitz, who founded the International Berlitz Language School, followed up a book about Atlantis and another book about Forgotten Worlds with a whole book about the Bermuda Triangle in 1974 titled The Bermuda Triangle. And in this, he also referred to the Philadelphia Experiment. Five years later in 1979, he would write a book entirely about it called The Philadelphia Experiment, Project Invisibility. In that book, there are references to a Navy technician named Thomas Townsend Brown, who had supposedly unlocked the secret to anti-gravity and also maybe rendering objects invisible to the naked eye. Now, a year before that book, back in 1978, scriptwriters George Simpson and Neil Berger wrote a novel called Thin Air, about a secret teleportation experiment aboard the fictional USS Sturman that clearly borrowed heavily from the Philadelphia experiment tropes floating around in the conspiracy. Based on all of this, screenplays were commissioned that resulted in the wholly subpar bubblegum sci-fi movie The Philadelphia Experiment, starring Michael Bray and Nancy Allen, which came out in 1984. It was a flop, making only $8 million on a $21 million budget. But now the Philadelphia Experiment was firmly entrenched as part of the pop culture conspiracy world. As such, it would change and morph, getting details added, sometimes contradictory ones, and grow into a rather famous Fortean conspiracy theory. 
Over the years, the story has grown larger and larger, fueled by people like Alfred Bielek, who claimed in 1989 that he had actually been on the USS Eldridge during the experiment and had seen some crazy things. Of course, he was later figured out to be a hoaxer, naturally, but others simply speculated or connected the dots that they found to weave a fantastical tale of what may or may not have happened on October 27th or 28th or 29th, 1943. You see, the whole thing was an attempt to use Einstein's unpublished equations to unify the forces of electromagnetism and gravity. Some on the project thought this maybe would make light bend, thus rendering an object invisible to the naked eye. This could be a real game changer for the U.S. in their war against the Nazis in Imperial Japan, so of course the experiment was given the green light. Special generators were placed on the USS Eldridge, which then disappeared, being replaced by a greenish fog, according to onlookers, before reappearing. Many crew members aboard ship fell ill afterwards. A few went insane, and at least one suffered physical displacement. He dematerialized from his position on one deck, only to reappear one deck below, but with his hand embedded in the bulkhead. No, 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 others said. The ship vanished in a flash of blue light, not a green fog, teleported 200 miles away to Norfolk, Virginia, where it was seen by crew members aboard the SS Andrew Furuseth, the ship that Allen had claimed to be on. And there wasn't just one case of physical dematerialization, but several, including some crew members reappearing, turned inside out. Also, when it popped back into Philly water space, the ship had traveled 10 seconds backwards in time, though other people said it was 10 minutes. Some went even further, saying surviving crew members who had not gone mad from the experience were subjected to systematic brainwashing to make them forget the whole thing. And of course, things went badly during the experiment because those dumb naval scientists had calibrated all the equipment incorrectly. <laughs> stupid, stupid scientists. scientists. Stupid, stupid Navy. Navy. Besides the obvious preposterousness of all these claims, there are some serious problems with the story. First off, the USS Eldridge wasn't in Philadelphia in October 1943. It was a new ship and was on its first test run, which is known as a shakedown cruise, in the Bahamas at that time. At least that's according to naval documentation, though, ha ha, those have those been, falsified, been falsified, say the true believers. In 1996, a bunch of old veteran crew members from the Eldridge told a Philadelphia newspaper that the ship had never docked in Philadelphia at all, ever. But of course, they would they say would that, say wouldn't that they, way, if they had they been had brainwashed? <clears throat> Some of the evidence seems to point to a misreading of an actual experiment that took place aboard the Everts-class destroyer escort, the USS Engstrom, which had been docked right next to the Eldridge in New York City in September of 1943. On the Engstrom, powerful generators were installed to create a strong electromagnetic field that would make it non-magnetic so the magnetic mines couldn't attach to it. This is a process known as degaussing. You would do this because ships with this degaussing equipment could move faster through mined waters and in areas where German U-boat packs laid waste to shipping all along the American East Coast. And it's been used many times by various navies and is still used today. But when you degauss an object, there are no visible signs that its magnetic field has been altered. And it certainly does not turn invisible. Another one of the claims Alan Allende made was that he had seen with his own eyes a man who had been on the crew during the Philadelphia experiment disappear suddenly from the middle of a crowded bar. 
Obviously, he didn't see this happen, but maybe he heard about an actual story which has been confirmed by naval veterans of a bunch of sailors drinking in a bar, and one of them was underage when a fight broke out, and they snuck him out the back with the help of the bar staff. And then when the MP showed up, they said, yeah, it's weird, he just disappeared. Kind of strange, huh? Later, there'd be chatter. The whole thing was part of a CIA project codenamed Operation Rainbow. Purpose of this project was to make the Lockheed U-2 high-altitude reconnaissance airplane harder to see on radar. They tried putting a material on it that would absorb radar pulses, nicknamed wallpaper, but that didn't work. They tried attaching wires from the edge of the wings that could reduce really low-frequency radar reflections, which they named the trapeze, but that also didn't work. Then they tried sticking wires off the tail and body of the plane, which they nicknamed the wires, and that also didn't work. In fact, none of their plans worked, and all through this period, the Soviets had no problem tracking the U-2s. So many people had become part of Operation Rainbow that further research was moved to a more secretive project called Project Gusto, which would result in the Lockheed A-12 Mach 3 reconnaissance plane. And the project for constructing that plane was known as Project Oxcart. But all this is about planes, not ships, despite some writers' attempts to link Rainbow with the Philadelphia Experiment. So maybe people heard about this and conflated the two. The whole Philadelphia Experiment story has some fantastic visual imagery, which is why it is caught on in the public imagination, according to researcher Jacques Vallée in a 1994 article for the Journal of Scientific Exploration. He says that rich images are an important part of implanting a hoax into people's minds. When we remember something, we're not actually recalling the event, but we're remembering the last time we remembered that event. And the parts of the brain that form images in memory are also the same parts of the brain that form images in imagination. So like when we read a book or when we confuse events that actually happened with other people's tales, and sometimes people even confuse things they see in movies or on TV with actual events because it's very often the same part of the brain that's creating that imagery. Anyway, the Philadelphia Experiment is a really good story and one that has become rather epic in scope and scale. There's a link in the episode notes to a pretty fantastic timeline of events surrounding the Philadelphia Experiment going all the way back to 1923 and ending in 1999. Check it out if you're interested. The Montauk Project Small but Mighty Sitting at the very tip of New York's Long Island, the hamlet of Montauk has become well-known for a number of reasons. It boasts six state parks. The lighthouse there is the fourth oldest active one in the U.S. and the oldest one in the state of New York. The area claims to have been the site of more saltwater fishing records than anywhere else on Earth. It's also where skishing was invented. This is a fishing technique wherein the fisherman or fisherwoman puts on a wetsuit and flippers and sort of just drifts along in the water, catching fish with a rod and reel. Famous people love the area. Artist provocateur Andy Warhol used to have a home there, where the Rolling Stones used to routinely hang out. Playwright Edward Albee retired there, dying at his home in the town in 2016. Ponzi schemer Bernie Madoff also had a house there. Paul Simon lived there for four years in the noughties, and singer Rufus Wainwright sang a song about the town of Montauk on his seventh album, the 2012 Out of the Game. Montauk has also been used by the entertainment industry many times. In 1964, the sci-fi horror flick The Flesh Eaters was filmed there, although production was delayed significantly when all the sets were destroyed by Hurricane Alma and had to be rebuilt. 
The character of Quint, played by Robert Shaw in the movie Jaws, is based on an actual Montauk shark hunter named Frank Mundus. The 1979 movie Cocaine Cowboys with Jack Palance and Andy Warhol was filmed there. The 1997 giant box office flop Commandments, starring Aidan Quinn and Courtney Cox, was shot there. A good portion of The Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind and 2000's Paper Man were shot there. The 2017 German film Return to Montauk is based on a novel, which is called just Montauk. The TV series The Affair is set in Montauk and largely filmed there. And the TV show Revenge is set in East Hampton, which is right next door. And the fictional bar The Stowaway in that series is actually filmed at a place in Montauk, though the rest of the series is filmed in North Carolina and Los Angeles. And Montauk has been in many, many other books, songs, movies, and so on. A good portion of Montauk as it looks today is largely the brainchild of developer Carl G. Fisher, who bought most of eastern Long Island in 1926 with the aim of turning it into what he variously described as the Miami Beach of the North and a Tudor village by the sea. In 1938, most of the town was wiped out by a hurricane and Montauk suddenly became an island. The downtown, if you can call it that for such a small place, was moved three miles south while they rebuilt. In the 1960s, a community of prefabricated housing branded Leisurama, which was kits people could buy from Macy's, was constructed here. It's also a place of mystery and maybe even danger. The waters off the shore are a now protected birthing zone for great white sharks. Just this year, in May, Amanda Fairbanks published The Lost Boys of Montauk, a nonfiction book about a fishing vessel disaster in 1984, which was one of the worst in that area's history, but also tracks how the town had changed from, quote, a drinking town with a fishing problem into a playground for the rich and famous. In July 2008, the carcass of a strange creature washed up on the shore near the business district. It was certainly weird looking, covered in very short fur with a kind of a big beak and almost sheep-like feet and many dog-like features. Dubbed the Montauk Monster, some thought it was a turtle that maybe had somehow lost its shell. Others thought it was some kind of weird raccoon that had bloated while floating in the sea. To this day, no one has ever properly identified it. Some locals thought that maybe it had come from Plum Island, which is across the bay to the northwest. This is where the Plum Island Animal Disease Center is located, a facility that researches livestock diseases and was also part of a biological weapons program until that was shut down in 1969. Civilians are not permitted entry onto the island to this day. Local folklore has all sorts of creepy tales to keep the kitties awake at night, from bizarre crossbreeding experiments to a full-blown island of Dr. Moreau kind of a thing. It is known that anthrax was studied there sometime in the past, and some say it still is. In 2014, writer Hunter Shea published a novel in which the people of the town of Montauk are terrorized by misshapen monsters that are bred on Plum Island in his novel, The Montauk Monster. Beyond just spooky stories, though, there are conspiracy theories, especially about Lab 257, part of the Plum Island complex. It's been described by some as a, quote, biological three-mile island with so many nasty things out there that it's frankly a miracle that the eastern seaboard hasn't been wiped out by some horrible virus or monster escaping. Usually people talk about viruses and bacteria as the evil critters, not weird turtle dog raccoons. According to some, like AIDS and Holocaust denier and big pharma conspiracy wingnut Jeffy Wren, 
Pence, who is also, for the record, a 9-11 truther and an anti-Semite, he's a busy boy, who says that Lab 257 created Lyme disease, which either got out onto the mainland accidentally or was purposefully introduced to the civilian population as a long-term experiment. Part of his proof is that Lyme disease, while it's all over the place, seems to be heavily concentrated along the northeast coast of the United States. Other people say that Lab 257 is the source of Morgellons disease. This is a disease in which red and blue threads that have been secretly implanted under your skin work their way to the surface, causing physical pain, hallucinations, and mental instability. This disease is totally not real, and you can only catch it by reading about it on the internet. It's a fascinating story, and one day there will be a future episode about it. Well, that's quite a lot of stuff going on for a town that's only 3,300 people and is technically classified as a hamlet, not even a town. But the number one conspiracy theory involves the abandoned Air Force base at the very tip of the island, the Montauk Project, which involves teleportation, interdimensional portals, time travel, aliens, and Nikola Tesla. Life Life imitating imitating art art imitating life. It all starts with a 1992 book by Preston B. Nichols and Peter Moon, whose real name is Vincent Barbaric, called The Montauk Project Experiments in Time. This kicked off a four-book series that reads like a long-form teleplay all about supposed experiments just outside the town of Montauk on the base. Nichols would later write a book about his experiences while working at Brookhaven Labs on a project to use music for mind control purposes and his personal adventures in time travel after he was abducted and forced to participate in secret military experiments and from which he escaped and then was on the run from sinister forces. This is awesome stuff and a great story, but he promotes it all as if it's nonfiction. And yes, while most people consider them to be what they really are, which is science fiction, there are some who say, no, 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 man, it's all true, man. Nichols also claims to have college degrees in electrical engineering, psychology, and parapsychology, though no one can find any evidence that this is true. In the book, we go all the way back to 1943 and the Philadelphia Experiment. Yes, according to this book, the ill-fated events aboard the USS Eldridge was all part of Project Rainbow, which continued doing things like this into the 50s. And no, Project Rainbow was not about trying to hide the U-2's radar signature, but developing weapons using electromagnetism to drive targeted individuals insane. And this project was funded by $10 billion of Nazi gold found in a train in France during the war. The weapons project, part of Project Rainbow, was codenamed Project Phoenix and started off at Brookhaven Labs on Long Island, where Nichols says he worked, but then it was soon moved to a more remote location to hide the massive satellite dish that they needed. The new location was Camp Hero at the Montauk Air Force Station in the late 60s, which is now a state park, where a massive underground complex was built going down 12 levels below the surface. With a brand new spanking facility in place, a number of nefarious experiments began in earnest in the early 1970s, including bombarding kidnapped homeless people with huge amounts of electromagnetic radiation to see what would happen. What happened is most of them died. Abducting runaway children to use as test subjects in mind control experiments, sometimes involving physical as well as mental torture. Most subjects died and were buried on site while the survivors became burned out shells. But there were a few successes. 
work on remote viewing, which is the ability to psychically project one's consciousness to another physical location and observe what's happening there. Chemical concoctions to create superhumans with superpowers. Enhancing people's latent psychic abilities. This resulted in some test subjects being able to make objects materialize out of nowhere. But many of these subjects suffered emotionally and mentally as a result. And trying to perfect teleportation technology. It was these teleportation experiments that would bear the most fruit. During one test, a time tunnel was created, allowing personnel to move through time at will. While using the time tunnel, after they figured out how to stabilize it, the researchers made contact with aliens who provided them with the knowledge to extend the tunnel's capabilities to include hyperspace. This hyperspace tunnel project was split off from Project Rainbow as a parallel operation. And then on August 12th, 1983, Rainbow and this parallel project were running experiments at the same time, and they accidentally linked up, shooting a space-time wormhole back to the Philadelphia Naval Yard in October 1943, where the USS Eldridge was accidentally grabbed and then trapped in hyperspace. Two crew members, Duncan Cameron and Alfred Bielek, jumped off the ship and landed in the Camp Hero lab in the year 1983. The generators creating the wormhole were shut down and the Eldridge shot back to 1943, minus their two AWOL crew members who remained in the 1980s. Please know that this is eerily similar to the plot of that sub-mediocre 1984 film. But the best bit is next. One day, while working with the hyperspace tunnel, an alien stepped through killing people on site and destroying much of the equipment. Military personnel managed to drive the creature back into the tunnel and shut it down. All the remaining equipment was then destroyed. This would become a major plot point in the very popular Netflix series Stranger Things. In fact, the original working title of that series was Montauk. This last incident precipitated the permanent closure of the facility. All remaining staff were brainwashed using the techniques they developed earlier, or maybe some say they were just all killed. Man, what a story. And yet, it wasn't over. Nichols and Moon would go on to write more books about the Montauk Project with even more startling revelations. Like... Nikola Tesla did not die in January 1943 in New York City after being hit by a taxi cab, but actually was the director of the project in its early days, and that whole taxi story was misdirection. Although Tesla was 86 years old in 1943, so he couldn't have lasted too long at Montauk. Former spy and James Bond creator Ian Fleming did not die of a heart attack brought about by excessive drinking and smoking, but actually died here at Camp Hero during an experiment. That whole story that his last words to ambulance drivers in England were, I'm sorry to trouble you chaps, I don't know how you get along so fast with the traffic on the road these days, before falling unconscious and dying at Kenton Canterbury Hospital on August 12, 1964, was a cover story. Nazi scientists brought to the United States during Operation Paperclip were put to work here, where they continued the secret Nazi UFO building program. The Apollo moon landing in 1969 was hoaxed up and filmed here on a specially built movie set. The infamous black helicopters were also designed and constructed here. The men in black were created here as part of a psyops experiment perpetrated upon the American public. 
Subliminal messages were used extensively emanating from here on the unsuspecting populace in an effort to create a mass mind-control weapon. Early bioengineering projects resulted in a plethora of monsters such as the famous Jersey Devil. The internet was invented here. AIDS was invented here and then escaped the lab either accidentally or maybe on purpose. And the whole thing was in fact an occult endeavor. The project heads were members of an ancient and esoteric cult and they had a 50 foot tall ziggurat built out of titanium in the underground base for their arcane and mysterious rites. The cultists sort of blended their beliefs with some of those of former Nazi scientists working alongside of them, specifically the Order of the Black Sun, and they were seeking the Ark of the Covenant as well as the Holy Grail. Note, both of these have been used as MacGuffins in Indiana Jones movies, as well as decoding the hidden meanings in the Tibetan Book of the Dead. And, of course, many of these hybrid cultists were secretly continuing the even more esoteric work of the Third Reich. So, really, the whole thing was kind of like Hydra in the Captain America movies. Now, the Camp Hero site had been chosen because, in fact, there were already ancient pyramids buried there. These pyramids were, in fact, stargates that allowed access to other times, like ancient Egypt and the lost civilization of Atlantis, and other places, like Mars and a planet orbiting the star Sirius. And the project may still be going on today, but even more secretly. If so, they now have access to time travel, vehicle-less space travel, and parallel universes. And so the Montauk Project has become a meta-conspiracy, encompassing all sorts of threads of the conspiracy into a cohesive narrative. As I've said in earlier episodes about the Men in Black, Black Helicopters, the Moon Landing, and so on, if Nichols and Moon had simply marketed these as fiction, I think they would have had greater success. But being coy seems to be part of the game they're playing, whatever that is. They actually want people to speculate as to whether it's all true or not, or maybe it's only partly true. Though at one point of their promotional materials, they do write, quote, whether you read this as science fiction or nonfiction, you are in for an amazing story which is certainly true, and you can make of that what you will. Fans slash true believers frequently visit the site, posting pictures and videos of the seemingly abandoned base and talking about feeling weird energies in the area because, of course, these, quote, researchers have extra special woo-woo abilities. Please see the episode notes and the dedicated playlist on our YouTube channel for some links and videos on these topics. Slav to love. Yes, that is a reference to the 1985 pop song Slave to Love by Brian Ferry. With a tapestry of material as rich and complicated as this, surely there's room for more players like Stuart A. Swerdlow. Swerdlow claims his great uncle was Yakov Shvedlov, the first president of the new Russian state back in the late 19 teens. Even though the Soviet Union would not actually be formed officially until 1922, three years after Svedlov died. Stuart Swedlow says he has also developed his intuitive powers and senses to such an extent that he can see energy fields, read people's minds, and read their DNA. Also, he's clairvoyant. He's made quite a name for himself in the woo-woo world and makes pretty decent money at it too. 
1998, he wrote a book in which he says that he too was part of the Montauk Project, recruited because of his family connections to the Soviet Union power structure. Also, he has been abducted by aliens on multiple occasions and been pursued by shadowy figures in the employ of the government. He then met Preston B. Nichols, and the two of them talked, eventually recovering memories that had previously been lost due to brainwashing of their participation in time travel experiments at Montauk and other revelations involving alien races and the fate of humanity. Swerdlow was captured by government agents at one point and imprisoned, but his amazing mental abilities managed to get him out of his ordeal. And much of this is detailed in this 1998 book, which is called Montauk, The Alien Connection. He would write more books, one about how properly focused sexual activity can create something he calls sexual hyperspace, one on how to identify if you have suppressed memories because you were once an experimental subject yourself and had your memory wiped, one about reading the, quote, hyperspace language, sometimes known as the Vril, which is also mentioned in a previous episode, and being able to reprogram your own DNA simply by thinking about it. And he also wrote a book about the symbolism of and legends surrounding owls. I feel like he was inspired by season two of the TV show Twin Peaks. In 2019, he self-published two books, one on how people can use the power of the mind to heal anything, and another about time travel, his meeting with Jesus, unlocking the Bible code, and much, much more. Of course, he pitches all of this as being 100% totally true. Turns out he is not, in fact, related to Yakov Sverdlov at all. He's not even Russian. His family comes from Poland and Belarus. As for his other claims, I don't think you really need to wonder too much about the veracity of those, but some people have looked into it anyway, only to find dead ends, outright fabrications, contradictory claims from within his own writings, and much, much more. He is a liar, charlatan, and fraudster on a massive ego trip for fun and profit. And then there's Alfred Bielek who says he was on the USS Eldridge back in 1943, but got transported to 1985 during the Montauk Time Tunnel slash Project Rainbow Kerfuffle. He started talking about his experiences in 1989, and then at a MUFON conference in 1990, he revealed his wild and wonderful tale to a rapt audience of people who just want to believe. Born in 1927, he was a precocious child, of course he was, recalling that at only nine months of age, he could totally understand everything the adults around him were saying, and throughout his childhood, he would remember facts after only being exposed to them once, and many called him a walking encyclopedia. He's so, so special. special. He joined the Navy when the U.S. entered World War II and soon found himself assigned as a low-level naval officer aboard the USS Eldridge in 1943. Keeping in mind that he says he was born in 1927, and in 1943, he would have been only 16 years old. So, boy, precocious indeed. He says that, yes, the Philadelphia Experiment incident did happen, yet not at the end of October, but on August 13th. And that's why no one can find any information about it. Things aboard the Eldridge started going wonky, and he and his brother, who had also enlisted and ended up assigned to the same ship as Al, jumped overboard to save themselves as the vessel was trapped in a hyperspace-time vortex. And when they landed, they found themselves in the year 2137. 
There they made their way to a hospital being treated for radiation burns using highly advanced medical technology that used vibrations and light to heal. What an interesting world the future was. Another detail he noted was that there was no fictional TV programming at all. The only stuff you could watch was either educational or the news. Through watching TV and talking to the locals, the pair learned that there had been massive shifts in the geography of the Earth. All coastlines were radically altered. For example, all of Florida except the Panhandle was underwater. The Great Lakes had merged into a single super lake. The Mississippi River was now 50 miles wide. And Atlanta, Georgia was only three miles from the Atlantic Ocean. That sounds kind of like rising sea levels, which he says occurred between 2020 and 2025. Though, it should be noted that in order for Atlanta to be that close to the ocean, sea levels would have to rise by 250 meters, or 820 feet, which would totally submerge all of Florida. So, either the panhandle survives, or Atlanta gets a beach, but both can't happen. Anyway, maybe he misremembered it. He was traumatized, after all. The rising tide had pretty much put an end to the United States and also Canada. And instead of central governments in these former nations, things had devolved into small-scale martial law zones. Western nations had already suffered from a catastrophic war between the U.S. and Europe on one side and Russia and China on the other side, which had reduced the entire world's population to 300 million people and essentially killed off the concept of the nation-state. After spending a bit of time in this hospital, suddenly, Al was temporarily flung forward again, this time to the year 2749. This was a world of floating cities, but with no war because everything was run by a globe-spanning AI that communicated with its human subjects through telepathy, creating a post-scarcity world society in which everyone had everything they could possibly need. He lived in 2749 for two years, and then with the help of the Synthetic Intelligence Computer System, as the world-spanning AI was called, he traveled back to 2137 to get his brother, who had not been teleported further into the future. From there, they then went back to 1984, where they met famed Hungarian mathematician Dr. John van Neumann, who had faked his death in 1957 and was very high up in Project Rainbow. Note that in 1984, von Neumann would have been 80 years old had he been alive. Van Neumann convinced them that they had to go back to 1943 and try and fiddle with things so that the accident that had pulled the USS Eldridge into the wormhole never happened. A quest. So they did, but hmm, time is tricky and the timeline gets what the timeline wants. Bielik became something of a whiz at electronics thanks to his experiences in the far future and before he knew it he found himself part of the Montauk Project. He had a cover job in California, on the other side of the country, but that was no problem because, as a member of the project, he had access to a super-secret, ultra-high-speed underground train system that let him get from California to the tip of Long Island in no time at all. He would go on this commute every day after his regular job had quit. And eventually, the space-time tunnel would be created and stabilized, and then he didn't even need the train. He could just teleport back and forth. He climbed high up the Montauk hierarchy, becoming program director for the psychics. That was his title. During his tenure, he traveled to Mars on several occasions, as well as to further off extrasolar planets, where he collected both light and dark energy for use in experiments. And he also got to get in some time traveling, going all the way back to 100,000 BCE and as far ahead as the year 6037. 
But eventually, he thought the public should know about all this and started giving talks, and so the government cut him loose. But he knew he was safe from harm because he'd been in so many places in the timeline, both in the past and the future, that he was essentially locked in and nothing could be altered without catastrophic side effects. Of course, his fantastical story gets muddled with retellings. At one point, he seemed to say that he was actually a man named Edward Cameron who'd gotten his memories mixed up with a guy named Alfred Bielek during all this space and time jumping around. And that Duncan Cameron, the other time-traveling sailor from the Eldridge, had been Edward's brother. Or maybe he was Al and Cameron's memories got mixed into him. Anyway, Bielek and Cameron somehow got mixed up. Later on, it would all become clear and he would say that he had been born Edward Cameron with his brother Duncan. But during his time travel adventures, he suddenly found himself inhabiting the body of a nine-month-old boy belonging to Arthur and Albertiner Bielek, who then raised him as Alfred. And that is why, when he was nine months old, he could understand everything people were telling him, because he was, in fact, an adult mind trapped in a small body. Wow, that is quite a story indeed. You'd think people would congratulate him for being so imaginative and maybe option his narrative for a film franchise, but he kept insisting that it was all real. And yes, some people took that claim at face value. Though not everyone. There was a website called Al Bielek Debunked that had really an enormous amount of material rather exhaustively showing that Al was absolutely full of it. However, the website says, the Philadelphia experiment was real, it really did happen, but this Al Bielek guy was just an opportunist trying to cash in on the revelations that had come out in the 1970s and 1980s. That website went away, but then a website on a news group archive called Narchive said, hey, there'd been a problem while transferring this website to a news server, but it's now back online. Yet if you click that link, it will take you to a website that is called Bielek Debunked, but is actually a Vietnamese language website about how safe online gambling websites are run by a businessman named Pedro Fletcher, who clearly just bought the domain rights. Anyway, the original website's homepage is still accessible on the web, as well as some pages. The website Bielek.com has been archived on the Wayback Machine, where you can find info on Bielek, his brother Cameron, Preston Nichols, and Stuart Swerdlow, as well as a couple of other fellows like... Phil Snyder, an engineer who worked for the government building underground bases and who was found strangled with a piano wire in his apartment in 1996. Phil had helped build the Montauk facility as well as the underground portions at the Groom Lake base, better known as Area 51, and storage facilities for flying saucers found in the Bikini Islands and elsewhere. There are even papers and audio recordings available on this archived site. It is tons of fun. If you're into that sort of thing, check it out. Link in the episode notes. It's obviously all hooey, but boy, oh boy, is it a rip-roaring good tale. Thank you for visiting The Conspiracy Clearinghouse. We're closing now, but we'll open another crate in the next episode. Until then, thank you for listening.